This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody, to another broadcast. We're glad you're here. I'm going to dive into something that I think is really important to do now and then, and that is to kind of take a look at the state of apostasy. I don't like to do that all the time because I think that it can become very depressing, and I'd much rather talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and edify and encourage you rather than bring you down. But at the same time, we need to know what's going on out there, and we need to know what kinds of shenanigans or schemes the father of lies is up to. I want to throw in here at the outset that I'm going to be actually speaking on this topic of biblical discernment, combating the father of lies at the upcoming Truth Women's Conference, the Answers for Women's Conference in uh, Williamstown, Kentucky, right out of Cincinnati, Answers in Genesis, of course, a wonderful ministry, and that will be March 18th through 20th. I'm really excited about coming to the conference. Hope you can join us. I know at this point we are actually sold out at maximum capacity, but there's still a waiting list. So if you're able to join us there at the Women's Conference, we'd love to have you there. But as you can imagine, this subject is very much on my mind. The father of lies is as wily as they get. He is the originator of all lies. It is his nature to lie. And therefore, all of the lies and the deception that come in against us as the body of Christ and against us as individual believers is tremendous. And we combat this every single day. It was very much the case under President Trump that this phrase fake news came into being and became very popular. People talked about fake news, especially about CNN as being fake news. But it seems the level of deception just keeps getting more and more and more elevated. And here's an example of this. I have to give credit here to Christian News Network because they had written about this over at their website. And not too long ago, this church called Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, posted this video of their pastor, Pastor Josh Scott, saying some of the most outrageous things. Now, I, I got to give you a little bit of background on this particular church. You might remember this church because I've talked about them before. Back in 2015, this was the church that decided to come out for so-called gay marriage. And it caused quite a firestorm at the time. Carrie Underwood, the country music singer, singer and American Idol winner, was a member there, went to that church and came out for marriage equality, as they like to call it. And not long after that, they decided that they were going to fully embrace the LGBTQ plus agenda. And there was a lot of press about this, obviously. Well, what happened in the aftermath was the church shrank. (laughs) It was unbelievable. I went back to this out and about Nashville website and they get into this. Grace Point Church began in 2003 as a traditional minded church in the heart of Williamson County under Pastor Stan Mitchell's direction. He was actually the lead teacher and pastor, founding pastor of Grace Point Church. They say a series of real life experiences with struggling LGBTQ plus members and employees of the church led to 
Mitchell spearheading the successful effort to turn Grace Point into a fully LGBTQ plus inclusive church in early 2015. The change was not without a steep price, though. Hey, wait a minute. I thought you just said it was successful. Uh, Roughly half the membership left as a result of the affirming action and the introduction of a progressive Christian theology soon afterward. A fall in revenue led to staff cuts and a decision soon after to sell the current church property in favor of sharing a worship facility inside LGBTQ-friendlier Davidson County. So there's the rest of the story, as they like to say, that Grace Point Church got a lot of nice press from the progressive media hailing them as being groundbreaking and isn't this a wonderful church affirming same-sex marriage? Yeah, no, no, not at all. And I'll tell you what, that was just the beginning because when you listen to some of what you're about to hear, it just really encapsulates and, and stresses for all of us why churches go wrong in the first place. So I want to get into a little bit of this YouTube video called What is Progressive Christianity? Posted by Pastor Josh Scott at this LGBTQ plus affirming progressive Christian congregation at Grace Point Church. Listen to cut one. Uh, Another uh, misconception. The Bible just isn't an answer book or a rule book or an instruction book. Um, The Bible does not contain basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not what the point of the Bible is. Um, The Bible isn't like, and I don't know if this is still how it is today, but um, when I was a a kid in elementary school in the 80s, we would always, like the teacher would leave the room for something, and we would go up and get the teacher's edition and flip to the back and and get the answers. The Bible doesn't have, it isn't an answer book. It doesn't give us, often, actually, I think good readings of the Bible should leave us with more questions than they ever do answers. What? Right. You're going to read the Bible and think, I'm better off if I come away from the Bible with more questions than answers. This is the whole emergent church vibe coming back. And apparently they're big fans of Brian McLaren. No surprise there. It's all about mystery. It's all about unanswered questions. And isn't that beautiful? No, I don't think confusion is beautiful. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And I would agree that the Bible is not a mere rule book or instruction book. But let's be honest, the way that we know who God is, is through his word. We would not know all that we know about the Lord were it not for that revelation, that special revelation of God. We have a general revelation of God's existence in creation. Romans 1 talks about this, that just by looking at a mountain range or looking in your backyard or looking at your little baby's toes, you can tell there's a creator. It's patently obvious, but the special revelation that we receive in God's word is the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, the revelation in the Old Testament that a Messiah is coming and the announcement in the New Testament that he is here and the further announcement that he is coming again. And so we are to repent and receive forgiveness for our sins because of his shed blood on the cross and rising from the dead on the third day. That's our entire hope from beginning to end that we as rebellious sinners all the way back in the garden have now got the greatest hope of all time, which is God himself came to earth and took our place on the cross. And through him, we can be saved and reconciled to God and have eternal life in heaven. So we do need that. But we also have instructions in the Bible as to how we are now to live as Christians. What do you think the epistles are all about? What do you think all Paul's letters are about or all of the gospels? We need to know what to do as Christians. God's law was revealed in the first place as a school teacher to lead us to Christ. 
The law was given, the moral law was given, and there was also a civil law and a ceremony, a law for Israel, but we still have the moral law. It's called the Ten Commandments. Are we not supposed to look at the Ten Commandments and understand that is a form of instruction? The whole Bible is a form of instruction, but it's not a legalistic toolkit for you to go around and become a new generation of Pharisees. That I would agree with. But this guy is just kind of off to a bad start in talking about the Bible. Then he answers this question, well, judge for yourself, what is the purpose of the Bible? Now, imagine if your pastor answered like this, cut to. And so the Bible ultimately isn't trying to give us answers. It's trying to inspire us. It's trying to point us in a direction. It's trying to bring up some curiosity and some questions. But when we use the Bible just as sort of a rule book, it really just becomes um, legalistic and it actually can hurt people because the point of the Bible actually, it's not rules. The point of the Bible, I think, is it's trying to call us into a more full, generous and compassionate humanity. What? Yeah, he really said, I think the purpose of the Bible, I think, first of all, any pastor who is going to say, I think in front of this is the purpose of the Bible, shouldn't be trying to interpret the Bible at all in front of anybody. He needs to get his own act together and understand what the purpose of the Bible is and not stand up in front of a watching world and take a few wild guesses and come to the conclusion that the Bible is generally to talk about the full and generous and compassionate was it? humanity? No, because if we were to conclude that, what we would have to then decide and and project is that the Bible's all about me. Isn't that what ails this generation? It's all about me, baby. It's my self-esteem, my worth, my value, and my identity. That's what the Bible's all about. And we need to make the Bible bigger than it is. No, we don't. God decided what we needed in his word, what we needed to hear from him. And it's exactly the way that he wanted it to be. And it is inerrant and it is infallible and it's not containing any gaps of information. It's not lacking in any way, shape or form unless you approach the Bible that it needs to do your bidding rather than you needing to bow your knee to God. And it gets worse. We're going to talk about this pastor's attack on God's word when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. In many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique, nine of 10 Christians are denied God's word by corrupt governments and majority religions. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me. And now it will mean so much to these Bibleless Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor Abel. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, and a limited time match will double your gift and help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Please call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is eternal and it is powerful. It is the sword of the Spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 6. And we know how powerful the Word of God is. We would be lost without the Word of God. And yet, we see some of these progressive pastors, emergent pastors, uh, apostate pastors out there saying all kinds of goofy things. I'm just glad I don't have the time to scour the internet all day, because I can't imagine what I would actually find Christian News Network had highlighted this story recently. Josh Scott is the pastor at Grace Point Church in Nashville. This was the church that became famous for becoming LGBTQ plus affirming in 2015 and then promptly lost half its membership and a whole lot of money. And then they had to move to another facility and lost their pastor. But this guy keeps going. And this is a big attack on God's word. This is where we are right now. We are at a point in our American Christianity, where it is wheels off and it is flat out attacks on the word of God. And this is what this Josh Scott has to say about God's word. Listen to cut three. The Bible also isn't the word of God. Now, I know this is probably the most challenging point for those of us who have been told again and again and again and again, the Bible is is God's word. The problem is the Bible does not claim to be that. Um, The word of God and the way it's often translated through, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the word of the Lord in the Bible is actually used in the writings of the prophets to describe the message and passion that the prophets were bringing into the world. And so often a prophetic call story, when when they sort of get commissioned to carry out the work of a prophet, they have this moment where the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that like an Amazon drone flew up and dropped off a package, they opened it up, and there's a scroll, and they're supposed to read the, this Bible to people? No, the word of the Lord was more, it was more charismatic. It was more something, it was the fire trapped in the bones. And it was often calling an unjust people to do justice, um, to, to live compassionately and to care about those around them who were on the receiving end of all the injustices of society. It was a way of talking about the, the source and inspiration, the source of the inspiration of the message they were bringing. So in that sense, the Bible does contain some of God's word in the sense that it contains these stories of prophets who believe they were inspired to share these messages. Um, and in the New Testament, the point actually is not, uh, is that word is always seeking to become flesh. That's the beautiful image John gives us in John 1, where the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. 
right? This idea that the word is always trying to be embodied. And so the Bible just just isn't God's word in the sense that it's something that God wrote and dropped down into the world. It's actually much more interesting than that. I know. What do you even say to this? What do you even say to this? He didn't drop the Bible down into the world, Josh Scott. Nobody claims that. Uh, When we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, we talk about how God worked through men to record his word. And it's just incredible. Do do you like that translation of John 1, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood? Well, what translation is that? Is that like the McLaren version of the Bible? What is that? And I go back to the, the, the Bible.org and they're talking about the internal evidences and the external evidences that the Bible is truly God's word. The internal evidences are those things within the Bible that testify of its divine origin. One is the unity of the Bible. Even though it's 66 individual books written on three continents in three different languages over a period of approximately 1,500 years by more than 40 authors who came from many walks of life, the Bible remains one unified book from beginning to end with without contradiction. And this unity is unique from all other books and is evidence of the divine origin of the words which God moved men to record. Another of the internal evidences that indicates the Bible is truly God's word is the prophecies. The Bible contains hundreds of detailed prophecies relating to the future of individual nations, including Israel, certain cities, and mankind. Other prophecies concern the coming of one who would be the Messiah, the Savior of all who would believe in him. Unlike the prophecies found in other religious books, like Nostradamus, for example, biblical prophecies are extremely detailed. There are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And not only was it foretold where he would be born and his lineage, but also how he would die and that he would rise again. There simply is no logical way to explain the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible other than by divine origin. And there's a lot more evidence. Obviously, I don't have time to go into all of it. And this was via Norm Geisler's book, Making Sense of Bible Difficulties. This is really important for us to be able to understand and defend against those who would make ridiculous claims. Oh, no, it's not the word of God. It doesn't claim to be the word of God. Uh, did you miss the, the the whole the passages where Jesus was saying, uh, talking about himself and he was going through all the scripture and talking about who he was and, and referencing the Old Testament scripture? You come to the scriptures, think, you know, they, they testify of life, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They testify of me. We could go into all kinds of verses in the Bible, internal evidence that the Bible does claim to be the word of God. How many passages do I need to read? But... He gets even worse. Listen to this. Cut four. Uh, tell you something else that's much more interesting. The Bible isn't inerrant or infallible. Um, I, I do think the Bible is far more interesting than inerrancy and infallibility. The idea that, for, if you know what those, don't know what those terms means, like the Bible has no errors and the Bible is right about everything it says. Reference Genesis 1 and the cosmology, right? The idea that for the Bible to have any sort of authoritative role for Christians, that it has to be this perfect Perfect, pristine things, has no errors, really misses the point. Actually, part of what I find inspiring about the Bible is that it records different views. And it shows the communities that produce these texts were willing to wrestle, grow, and learn all of the time. What does that even mean? Wrestle, grow, and learn, really? Was that what Moses was doing? Was that what Paul was doing? Wrestle, grow, and learn? I don't even know what he's talking about. And when you are talking about the different authors, it wasn't about them wrestling and growing. It was about them having that incredible divine unity. 
across all of those centuries and across all of those different backgrounds that all of the writers of the Bible had, they had to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. That book is a miracle. That book containing 66 books is a miracle. So what's Josh Scott's proof for this claim that the Bible is not inerrant and the Bible is not infallible? Mm, You're going to love this. Cut five. Give you an example. If you go to some of the various books called wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Job, um, what you'll find out is that they are trying to make sense of why things happen like they do. Why do bad things happen? Why do, why do we suffer? And here's the, here's the interesting part. They don't agree on the answer. And I think that's a beautiful thing. There is a space. There is space to grapple with big questions. And for me, seeing our ancestors do that, in, in, essentially in some of their writings in real time, uh, it reminds us that actually this is what an alive and vibrant faith does. It doesn't just sit back on yesterday's interpretations because what if we've been given better information? What if we know something else about how the world works? What if we learn a new thing about what it means to be human? And do we have to keep that over to the side and still hang on to this interpretation? No, no, no. We, we, can, we can transcend and include. We can move beyond. We can appreciate how this belief or practice or, or perspective got us here, but it's not going to get us into the future. And so we have to begin to... to move on and embrace what we've discovered to be truth. Progress, baby. That's what it's all about. We worship progress because it's a form of chronological snobbery. If we are in the year 2021, clearly we're smarter than the people who lived during the Bible times, right? We're smarter than the early church. We're smarter than the Reformation, uh, the reformers during the time of the Protestant Reformation. We're smarter than the Puritans. We're smarter than the faithful Christians throughout history. We're smarter than all of them. And we're smarter than all the Bible writers. And ultimately, we're smarter than God. Because clearly, you can't look back at some old text and try to conclude that that one interpretation is just going to be there for all time. Newsflash, Josh Scott, the Bible never evolves. And if you're talking about what if we discover new ways to be human, let's put that in an LGBTQ plus context. If you are walking around claiming that somebody is trapped in the wrong body, it's a man who believes he's a woman. That's not what it means to be human. That's what it means to deny your humanity. And that's not progress. That is regress. And that is mind-bogglingly wrong. And this is what happens when you begin to rely on human wisdom to figure things out and you begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is where you end up. Why go to church? Why go to church? Not so long ago, I was playing for you some cuts from that woman in Canada who's an atheist and she's she was a pastor and pastrix, I should say, in the United Church of Canada, I believe it was. I'm doing this off the top of my head. But she, she was talking about how great it is to be an atheist and a pastor because basically all the churches for her is a big social justice club. And that's what the mainline liberal Protestant denominations are in our country today. They're just mainline Social justice clubs, that's it. You wave your rainbow flag, you trot out your pastrixes, you talk about how inclusive you are, and then you bash conservative Christians because <laughs> you're so inclusive. That's how you show your inclusivity. Well, you're just close-minded. No, you know, the point of an open mind is to close tightly around the truth and you don't let go. That's the key. It's not that the Christian does not have space to grapple with the big questions. The hope of the Christian reading the Bible as it has been handed down to us, inerrant in the original autographs, is that when we do grapple with the big questions, we can get the answers. And then we can rest in God's word because God does give us the answers to the biggest questions. Why am I here? 
Why am I here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to have a relationship with the Lord? And he did the work of reconciling me to himself through the cross. He did it all for me and I didn't deserve it. I'm a sinner. I fell into sin. I inherited my sin nature from Adam. And because of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, I can be reconciled to God again. It's the greatest news the world has ever received. And when I read God's word and I study God's word, there is a joy and there is such a happiness. There really is. Because in a world where we are just rocking back and forth like a boat out of control, spinning out of control, spiraling out of control with all of this deception, we can have absolute confidence in God's solid, inerrant, infallible word. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Philippians 1.29 tells us, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's a hard verse for a lot of us to understand here in the United States. But many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are living it out every day. So we're going to talk about it now with Todd Nettleton. He is Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for The Voice of the Martyrs. He served there for more than 20 years and is also host of The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. And in his his latest book, he gleans the stories of some of the hundreds of persecuted Christians he's interviewed over the years to share the hope and encouragement that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. His book is called When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. Todd, so good to have you with us again. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's interesting. You say that when you started out at the Voice of the Martyrs, you had a different perspective on persecuted Christians than you do now. How would you say your perspective has changed over the years? Well, you know, on on my first trip to China, I think back very clearly to that, and we were going to meet a pastor uh, who had a unregistered church service every Tuesday, and the church service was growing. Many people in that village were coming to Christ. And so the authorities took to arresting him Tuesday morning and holding him all day or even overnight into Wednesday just so he couldn't show up at that Tuesday service in that particular village. And so that had happened like 13 times in the three months before we were there. And so my picture in my mind was, hey, we're going to interview this pastor. He's been arrested all these times. He's having all this trouble. Uh, he's probably going to be really discouraged and depressed. And it is, it's so good that we could come from America and cheer him up. And, you know, then when we got there, he, he didn't need cheered up at all. In fact, he was perfectly fine without us coming. But he was excited about what God was doing. He was excited that people in the village were coming to know Christ, that the church was growing. And it didn't really bother him 
to go to jail every Tuesday. In fact, he showed us the bag he had packed to go to church. It had a blanket in it. It had a change of clothes in it. And that was his jail bag. He was just like, hey, (laughs) if I get arrested, I've got my bag. I'm ready to go. He was totally unconcerned about the suffering. He was unconcerned about the persecution. He was joyful and excited about what God was doing. And that's the attitude that I've seen repeated again and again over the years since then. Well, it's so interesting. And I've heard tales like that before, that when you really do encounter some of these worst persecuted Christians around the globe, there's a joy there that is very shocking and surprising to a lot of Westerners who would expect, like you did, for them to be a little bit more gloom and doom. How do you account for that? What do you think is responsible? Obviously, the Lord gives them the joy, that supernatural joy that you can have in the midst of a trying circumstance as a persecuted Christian. But how do you account for that? When you have looked at all of the lives of these persecuted Christians and you see that kind of joy, is it being able to persevere through the persecution and see God's faithfulness that you think works that in them or what? You know, I think it is the presence of Christ that is is somehow is more real and more significant and more special in the midst of suffering mm. than it is on a normal day. Yeah. And maybe than it is for us who, who don't suffer. Uh, I think of Pastor Hassan, who was imprisoned in Sudan, and uh, he told me that many of the nights in that Sudanese prison, he had to sleep on the floor of his cell. It was a, a concrete floor, and he said, I would lay on the floor, and in the middle of the night, I would just weep. And I said, you know, being a comfortable American, I said, oh, because you missed your family, because you were sore, because it was so uncomfortable. He said, no, 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 no. I would just lay on the floor of that prison cell and I would weep tears of joy because Jesus was so close to me, that his presence was so real, that the only response I could have was to weep tears of joy in his presence. I think that's the secret. It's just the presence of Christ that we somehow becomes more real to us in times of suffering. Yeah, I think that's really it. That is so neat. And it's amazing, really, what the Lord does in the lives of these persecuted Christians. What has it been like? I'm just curious, Todd, as you have traveled around the world, generally speaking, to visit with some of these persecuted Christians. What is your big takeaway when you really kind of pull back and look at their lives? You know, there's a couple. One of them is joy, and we've talked about the fact they're not depressed. They're not downtrodden. They are joyful. The other one that has really affected me in the way I walk out my faith is a passion for the Scriptures, a passion for God's Word, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to make it a part of your life. Uh, You know, I've, I've talked to Christians who've told me they prayed for years that they would someday somehow be able to own a copy of the scriptures, their their very own copy of the Bible. They prayed for years. Uh, and I feel almost a sense of embarrassment when I pull my phone out of my pocket and say, well, I have nine translations on my phone. Yeah. But do you read it? Do you study it? Do you make it a part of your life? So I think that that passion for the scriptures is one of the recurring themes. And like I say, it's something I've tried to adopt and say, well, hey, I may not be persecuted, but I am going to be passionate about God's word. 
Oh, you have to be. And and I would imagine after visiting with so many of these brothers and sisters, it would be impossible not to have that attitude, which is wonderful. You have so many good stories in this book, Todd, so many Christians you've met along the way. And you, you talk about, for example, right at the start of the book, going to this village in Sudan in 1998. You tell this story about this pastor, Abraham. Can you talk a little bit about what you've experienced when you have been with Christians in Sudan, particularly in that case? Well, Pastor Abraham was a pastor that was visited by a previous team of VOM workers who went to Sudan, and they delivered Bibles to Pastor Abraham's village to his church. And at the time our team arrived, uh, Pastor Abraham's little red pocket Bible was the only Bible in his entire congregation. He had about 400 people in that congregation. He was the only member of the church who owned a Bible. And so our team arrived and delivered boxes of Bibles, and the joy of the people receiving Bibles, the the thought that every family in the church would have their own Bible was just almost mind-blowing to them. It was like, "Are, are you serious? You're giving us all a Bible? Well, after that team left, Mujahideen, radical Islamic Mujahideen from Sudan, attacked the village. Uh, They burned the church. They actually shot and killed Pastor Abraham, and they burned those Bibles that had just been delivered. And so when I went later that year, our team was trying to go back to that village to replace the Bibles that had been burned. And as I share in the book, uh, we never actually made it to that village. Everywhere along the line of that trip, it seemed like we ran into brick walls. And, you know, we couldn't land on the airstrip because it had rained and it was muddy. And we went to one village and we couldn't get gas. We couldn't find a truck that would take us where we wanted to go. It was one thing after another that just didn't go right. And the lesson of that, and the lesson that I try to share in the book is, we don't always know what God's plan is. It's, it may not be exactly what we think it's going to be. It may not go the way we want it to go, but God does have a plan. And we have to learn that so much of life is beyond our control. We have to allow Him to be in control and to get comfortable ourselves walking with the knowledge that we're not in control, but the Lord is. Well, that's such an important thing for everybody to remember, and I agree with you there. I think we have this tendency, maybe we've watched too many movies or read too many books over here, and we think everything needs to be tied up in a neat ending where everything comes together and everybody lives happily ever after. But what is the peace in resting in that truth that even if we are not in control, and we never really are, that we can rest in God's plan and, and we don't have to know every single thing that he, has, he is doing or might be doing in the situation in the future. You know, I, I think it's just that confidence. And one of the things that happens as you see these situations where God steps in and God does something or God closes the eyes of a guard or, or God allows something to happen, as you see those situations happen, you you come to walk in the expectation of watching for God to work. And the other thing that happens is you understand that, that the enemy cannot stop the work of God. I think of, you know, the great verse from the story of Joseph, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Our brothers and sisters in hostile and restricted nations live that out every day. What, what the Chinese Communist Party in China intends for evil, God can work that for good. What the Islamic government in Iran intends for evil, God can turn and work that for good. Very good. Todd Nettleton, we're going to come back after this break when Faith is Forbidden is the name of his book. Stay tuned here on Janet Meffer Today.
The Ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives and souls by meeting moms where they are and introducing them to their preborn babies through ultrasound. As soon as I saw that heartbeat, it was over. I cried the hottest tears I've ever cried, and I felt a fire in my belly and in my soul, and God touched me that day. He pierced my heart for my child, and I felt love. Preborn stands in the gap for abortion-minded women across America by providing free ultrasounds and the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. When a mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she'll choose life eight out of ten times. For your gift of $140 today, you can help rescue five preborn babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax-deductible. There's a preborn banner to click at janetmeffer.com or call now 855-402-2229. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. My guest is Todd Nettleton with The Voice of the Martyrs. He has been working with them for more than 20 years and has traveled all over the globe visiting with persecuted Christians and is out with a wonderful book, When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. You tell so many stories, as we were mentioning before, Todd. Another story that you tell in the book is about Hussein from Iran. Now, this is someone you had met in an undisclosed country back in 2009. Tell us his story, how he became a Christian. Obviously, he was a Muslim. Muslim initially, and and about his situation is trying to live as a persecuted Christian in a hostile part of the world. Hussein, as you say, he came to faith out of a Muslim background and uh, had, you know, quite an amazing journey of faith and a journey into ministry. In fact, when he came to faith, he was addicted to drugs. Jesus healed him from his drug addiction, his life cleaned up. He had a good job. He had a house. He had a car. Things were going really well for him. And God began to call Hussein into ministry, into a full-time work for the church, work for the kingdom kind of ministry. And Hussein told me that he resisted that call. He was like, Lord, you know, things are going well for me. We could have church meetings at my house. That would be great. But full-time ministry, please know, find someone else for that job. So the Lord had to work on him and actually took Hussein to a place where he almost drowned. And as he was almost drowning in the Caspian Sea, he cried out to the Lord, Lord, don't let me die. I've never given everything to you. Mm -hmm. And he said, as he cried out that way, and Hussein 
was not a swimmer at all. In fact, he told me he almost drowns taking a shower. <laughs> but as he cried out to the Lord, he said it was like hands lifted him up out of the water. And he was rescued. He survived and immediately said, okay, uh, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do full-time ministry. Actually, his church leaders told him at that time, listen, you've just had this near-death experience. Uh, you're feeling emotional right now. Why don't you hold off and, and we'll make a decision in a few weeks. Hussein said no. He quit his job. He sold his car. He paid his debts. And he said, I'm in full-time ministry. <laughs> if it's not with you, I'm just going to go out on my own. Uh, but he was committed to that full-time ministry. One of the first places he went, they, they assigned him to a pastor and the pastor's wife, and he was kind of their apprentice for a little while to train for ministry. One of the first places they went, the Lord confirmed his call. When they knocked on the door of this house, a young lady opened the door, and she immediately began to weep. And, you know, they're asking her, well, why, you know, why are you crying? Did, did something wrong? Did you do something? She said, no. Last night I had a dream that three people sat down with me at the table and they were going to tell me some news and now you have knocked on my door. You are the three people hmm. who I dreamed of last night. You're the three people I saw in my dream. So that young lady was very ready to hear the gospel, but also Hussein had complete confirmation that God was calling him and that God would empower his ministry going forward. Boy, that is incredible. And and what of the ministry now? What about that part of the world and what God is doing over there? You hear a lot of reports about the growth of the church, the house church movement in particular in Iran. Uh, what What do we need to know about where the church is right now in that part of the world? As with a lot of places, there is more persecution, but the good side of that story is part of the reason for that is because the church is growing so quickly. Iran has the fastest growing church in the world, and one of the amazing things, and again, we talked earlier about God turning evil for good, one of the things that is spurring the growth of the church in Iran is the Islamic government. The government says, hey, we are an Islamic government. We're doing everything according to Islamic principles. We are running the country just as Muhammad would have run it if he was still alive. And the people look at the country and they see the corruption in the government. They see one of the highest drug addiction rates in the world. They look at their government and say, the government is not working. Therefore, Islam doesn't work mm. because the government says we are Islam. <laughs> so they say Islam doesn't work. What are the other options? And so there is a very fertile soil to plant the seeds of the gospel because many Iranians look at their government and say, I don't want to be Islamic because Islam doesn't work. That's how the gospel is spreading inside Iran. But again, that is coming with a cost because many of those who are converted face some type of persecution, whether it's the government, whether it's their families, whether it's others, they pay a price for following Jesus Christ. Well, they do. You had mentioned the Chinese Communist Party earlier, and another story that you tell in the book is about John and Karen Short. John brought a Bible, as you say in the book, into North Korea, uh, working there in Asia and China and some of the other countries there in Asia. You say his bringing a Bible into North Korea made a huge difference. What happened to John Short? John was detained inside North Korea. He, he brought a Bible, was his own personal Bible in English, and he said, you know, when he goes through customs, they said, hey, this is North Korea, you can't bring a Bible. And he said, well, I'm a Christian, I need my Bible, so if I can't bring it, I'm just not going to come. And they obviously, that would cost them the, his tourist dollars, and so they said, okay, fine, you can bring it in. 
He also brought along some gospel tracts printed in Korean. He left them outside uh, a shrine there, and uh, the, the government found them. The police found them. John was detained. I believe it was, he ended up 13 days being detained. He was interrogated every morning and every afternoon all through that time. Uh, and he just had an amazing testimony of God's presence. One of the things, uh, I met John. I also interviewed his wife, Karen. Over the course of their married life, every single day, they read together a chapter from Proverbs and a chapter from the Gospel of John. The first day of the month, the first chapter, second day, the second chapter, and so forth. Both of them talked about the fact that while he was detained inside North Korea, reading those scriptures kept them connected. Even though they couldn't talk to each other, he wasn't allowed to call her reading those same scriptures and knowing, I know exactly what John's going to be reading because this is the third day of the month. I know the chapters he's going to be reading. And so reading those scriptures, even though they were miles apart and completely held out of communication, that kept them connected through that experience of him being detained. Thankfully, out of, out of respect, because he was more than 70 years old, out of respect for his age, the North Korean government uh, allowed him to leave and go back home. Uh, but it was a very challenging time for him, uh, and yet he was unintimidated by their threats, by the thought of having to suffer for Christ. That's amazing. Right, because obviously if you're going into North Korea and you're leaving any kind of gospel witness behind, he knew what could happen, right? He was fully informed and fully understood the risks. He certainly knew the risk, and he went in with his eyes open. One of the things about John that that had prepared him for that is years of gospel service in China, where he had had been friends and co-worker with Chinese pastors who had been in prison for 20-plus years. And so he had heard their stories. He knew the stories of suffering, but the stories of God's faithfulness. And so the thought of having to go to prison, the thought of suffering for Christ, didn't intimidate him as much as it might intimidate us because he had those sort of foundational relationships with people who had been there before. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about how you've been impacted and affected by meeting all of these persecuted Christians that you have. Do you find that these stories of persecution tend to encourage Western Christians to sell out more for the Lord and to take these kinds of risks for the sake of the gospel because they're hearing about the courage and the faithfulness of their brothers and sisters who have had a very tough time but but have joyfully served of the Lord, regardless of their circumstances? You know, I think if you will spend 40 days going through this book, When Faith is Forbidden, 40 days hearing the stories of persecuted Christians, I don't think there's a way you will not be affected by that. And as you say, making us more bold in sharing Christ with the people around us, making us more thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy as American Christians, and and making us more cognizant of how God is at work in the world, you know, even in ways maybe we didn't expect, maybe ways we wish he would work differently, but just having open eyes to see God's plans being advanced, uh, even sometimes in the midst of suffering. Well, how would you advise us to pray for these believers? Clearly, they're, they're not in need of visitation to cheer them up, as you mentioned in many cases, but how do you pray for them? You know, one of the things that I pray often, and I think, you know, we certainly can pray for protection. We can pray when we sit down to eat that our brothers and sisters will have enough to eat that day. 
But one of the things that I really encourage people to pray is that they will know they're being prayed for through the Holy Spirit. Supernaturally, God will let them know you're not forgotten. You're not all by yourself. The family of God around the world is remembering you and praying for you. Uh, I think that can be a great encouragement to them. And I've had some conversations along the way where I know God has answered those prayers. I've heard from people who say, you know, we knew people were praying for us. So neat. When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians, the book by Todd Nettleton from The Voice of the Martyrs. Todd, such a great book and so great to talk to you again. Thank you very much for being with us. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. God bless you. You are welcome. It was great to have you. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We pray that you will have a blessed day and we'll see you next time.